varmt välkommen. Du lyssnar på en inspelning från internationell författarscen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern med författaren Timothy Snyder i samtal med Björn Wiman, Dagens Nyheter. Mitt namn är Ingemar Fast och jag är konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen i detta stora allkonsthus vid Särgelstorg i Stockholm. Låt samtalet ta sin början. Yes, welcome uh, Mr. Snyder and welcome all of you and this is it. Uh, the must read, the book that is so important that every member of the Swedish parliament should read it as Ingmar stated and not only they. You in here should definitely read it and everyone else as well. I'm very uh, happy and honored to uh, be able to have this conversation with you. Uh, I am so for various reasons we we soon we're getting into them. Uh, but I w- w- would want to to uh, to begin with the thing that's on top of everyone's mind now, today, this day before the a possible disaster. <laughs> Do you also share this apocalyptic reflex that has been activated in so many of us here in Sweden uh, before the the presidential election tomorrow? Given your historical perspective and uh, having occupied, occupied yourself with totalitarian thought mm-hmm. and so on. Well, in, in, in a way, I suppose, let me start by thanking you and thanking the Culture House and thanking Bonia and thanking all of you for being present and thanking you for allowing me to speak in, in my mother tongue. Um, in a way, an apocalypse would be welcome because it would bring a certain amount of analytical clarity to the situation. Right, and an apocalypse, um, a, a clear end of something, a clear beginning of something else. Uh, that's that's an image which, of course, we all share. But in a way, it's an image which stops us from thinking about what's actually going on. So, I would stress first of all, here in Europe, anywhere in Europe, that the phenomenon which draws so much of your attention, our attention is not really an American one. It's a phenomenon of the West. It's a phenomenon of, of, at the very least, of a world which stretches from Russia through Europe to the United States. One thing I've been very struck by in paying attention to the Trump campaign and writing about the Trump campaign is that there are two groups of Americans who were very quick to understand that Trump was a problem and that Trump could win. And those were people who worked chiefly on Russia. And those were people who worked chiefly on the 1920s and the 1930s. So to answer your question, I belong to both of those groups. <laughs> and, and, and therefore, I've been distressed about this for a very long time. Um, the, w- w- and would you like me to talk about why I think it's happening? Yes, please. Okay. So. There, there are local causes and, and there are global causes. And let me start with the global ones. Let me start with the ones that I think we all share. There's, there's a problem in, in, in Russia, in Europe, in the United States of handling the, the fact of globalization, of handling the fact that we don't control ideas, we don't control people. There, 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 there are two basic ways of dealing with 
the reality of globalization. One is to say, it's, it's real, it's inevitable, we have to have some set of rules, laws, practices, ways of talking about other people. Another way to handle globalization is to say, it's not real, it's a threat, it's a conspiracy, it's a matter of other groups trying to hurt us. And in that, in that if we look at globalization this way, we see that whether it's Austria or Sweden, whether it's France or indeed Germany, whether it's Russia or the United States, there are important groups on both sides of that divide. Um, in, in, in Russia, one side of that argument has already won, the side which says globalization is a conspiracy, Global, there are no real rules, it's just a matter of people trying to get us. If we look at Trump, what Trump is doing is reviving the old anti-globalization language of the 1920s and 1930s. When, when Hannah Arendt writes about totalitarianism um, in, a, in a wonderful book, which we should all reread, everyone is saying that we should read my book, which is very flattering, but probably we should all read Hannah Arendt first. Um, it, it, what she says is that totalitarian language creates a fictive world. This is what Donald Trump, and not him alone, this is what he is doing. The it's not that he's a liar, he is a liar, but that's not the most important thing. It's not that he doesn't care about facts. He doesn't care about facts, but that's not the important thing. The important thing is that through his rhetoric, in the last year in the United States, he's created a kind of alternative world, a world in which American Muslims are a threat, even though in fact they're extraordinarily well integrated, a world in which blacks live in cities where there's nothing going on but gang warfare, even though the truth of the matter is that African Americans live more or less the same as other Americans. A world in which there are Jewish conspiracies where Hillary Clinton decides the fate of the world by talking to international bankers, right? He, he's a world in which the United States is being defeated because other nations such as the Chinese are smarter than we are, right? Th this is a world which doesn't correspond to facts, but more than that, it's a world that doesn't correspond to factuality. It is quite literary, it's quite literally a literary creation, right? And in that sense, it's like the fascism of the 1920s and the 1930s. It gives people a home, a kind of poetic home. It gives them a place to reside, a place to feel safe, a place which doesn't bear any resemblance to the world. And so when it's confronted by the facts of the world, it, it has to turn to, to the violence. This is something we all share. In the United States, there are some specific things which have happened. The, the first is the collapse of the Republican Party. The Republican Party has worked for the past 25 years according to the following logic. <clears throat> it, the, the, the Republican Party says, it's not that we oppose the welfare state, it's just that we think only African Americans and minorities profit from it. And then the Republican Party says, it's not that we're against African Americans and minorities, it's just that they take everything from the welfare state. And so while denying that you're racist and while denying that, you're that you oppose the state, in fact, you're opposing both. So there was a circular logic, right? Which made the Republican Party a party of the wealthy, which had an electoral basis of essentially 
whites, right? Um, with, often with often white racists. What Trump has done is he has said to the Republican electorate, if we're going to be racist, let's be racist openly. And why should there not be a welfare state that works for us and against others? So he's taken the internal contradiction of the Republican Party and exposed it. And, and he's, he's exposed a major weakness in the American political system. The other weakness that he's exposed is this, and this might be familiar to you, I don't know, but it's, it's the case in a lot of European countries as well as ours, that there's one party which, which has to be the party of the status quo. In, in, our party, in our country, that's the Democrats. The Democrats are basically a party of the establishment. Um, and then there's another party which is anti-systemic. The Republican Party has, for a very long time, ceased to be a conservative party. It's essentially a revolutionary anti-systemic party. It's a symbolic party. Um, that's no way to have politics because neither party really stands for anything. Not, neither party really has um, a, a qualitative agenda. One party stands for keeping the crazies out of power, right? In, in, our, in our system, that's the Democrats. And the other party stands for, let's get those elitists who are trying to keep us out of power. And then that becomes the discussion. That, that's the other thing which has happened to us. And it's very, it's very hard for the Democrats to stay in power because they're so boring, right? And I think this is, I mean, I say that as someone who just has devoted a lot of time and energy and money to them in the last several months. But it's very hard for them to stay in power because they're boring. They have no choice but to defend the system against a revolutionary challenge. But if you keep doing that over and over again, you become precisely the establishment. So that's a problem that we have, but it's also a problem that some of you have as well, I think. Well, you're not a political analyst, obviously. Uh, you're a historian, but what, what do you think will happen tomorrow? <laughs> See, the, the great problem with everything being recorded all of the time is that <laughs> no one ever forgets when you're wrong. Um, so w one thing I've noticed is that if you make a prediction and you're correct, no one ever remembers that. <laughs> no, it's true. Like, so for example, I predicted that Russia would invade Ukraine. Um, and at the time, everyone laughed at me and ridiculed me and said, "That's you're, you're wrong. And when Russia invaded Ukraine, um, exactly one person wrote to me and said, oh yes, you got it right. Because when you get predictions right, you just make everyone else feel bad, right? But when you get predictions wrong, you make everyone feel good. <laughs> and so that's what people remember, right? I will now tell you, I will now tell you what I think is going to happen. What I think is going to happen is that Hillary Clinton will win. Um, she will win by a fairly narrow margin of, let's say, three, three and a half percentage points. She will win about 280 electoral votes. It will be close enough that Trump will not accept the results. We will have several days of of chaos. Mm. I don't think there will be too much chaos, I, you know, because they're, although they're anti-systemic, they're not that well organized. I don't, think, I don't think that the people who come to Trump rallies are organized, but that's my prediction. My prediction is that Clinton is going to win and then there's, there's going to be a, a lot of raggedness and, and chaos for a few days after that. Um, and then we'll have Trump television. Having read your work, uh, not only The Black Earth, but also your previous work uh, translated to Swedish, Bloodlands from 2010, uh, the word chaos has a certain ring to it. Mm -hmm. That is equi equivalent to danger. 
And um, I said before that I'm honored and happy to have this conversation. And I am honored because I regard those two books as uh, one of the central acts of enlightenment of our time. Uh, Bloodlands, for those of you who haven't read it, is a um, very impressive piece of research and a very impressive piece of writing as well. It concerns the question of the 14 million people dead from the Black Sea to the Baltic in the years 1933 to 1945 in the uh, region that you call Bloodlands, which comprises modern-day Poland, Ukraine, Belarus, Russia and the Baltic states. And the perpetrators obviously are two, are Joseph Stalin and that's Adolf Hitler and all the people that went with them and killed other people. And this book, the new book, Black Earth, is no less impressive as an act of research and no less impressive as an act of writing either. It's unforgettable, really. Um, I, th I think I said I'm happy as well, and I'm happy because I will now have the chance to make you, all of you in here, really, really understand the importance of the thoughts that you express in here, because they are very current, they are very acute. And I know for a fact that there are two high school classes in here, from two Swedish, two Stockholm schools. They have studied your work, and they are here to listen. And I think, I, well, welcome to all of you, but especially welcome to you, all, all of you. And I think we, we will engage in trying to, to make all of us understand and get a bit more into your thoughts here. Uh, it is an important book, especially since we live in dark times and perhaps entering into even darker. You start, let's start from the beginning. I mean, you, you, you start with the concept of struggle and you claim that Hitler was not, as many people think, an ordinary German nationalist or even populist. You say that he's not. What, what was he then? It, to understand the Holocaust, we have to understand how Hitler saw the entire planet. If he had just been an authoritarian or if he had just been a nationalist, the Holocaust would not have taken place. There were plenty of authoritarians and nationalists in Europe, in power in Europe at the time. N none of them carried out this kind of total extermination. So I think for Hitler, with Hitler, we must begin with a certain understanding of the world. When Hitler looked at the world, he didn't see laws and states when Hitler looked at the world, he saw land and food. This is where he begins. This is where Mein Kampf begins. It begins with the claim that the earth is a finite territory. And it continues with the argument that human beings, like animals, exist in order to struggle for land, for their ecological niche, for what Hitler calls Lebensraum. And from this portrait of the world as it should be for Hitler, as it should be, Hitler then asks, why is the world the way it is? 
Why do the Germans, who I think are superior to others, why do they not always win? Why did they lose the First World War? Why don't they have a great empire? Why are there churches in the world? Why are there laws in the world? Why are there states in the world? These things shouldn't exist. Why are there ideas of solidarity and justice? Why do human beings look at one another and see human beings and not members of different races? Asks Hitler. And the answer is the Jews. So Hitler doesn't begin from the nation or the state. He begins from the world as he sees it. And his anti-Semitism is not the anti-Semitism of prejudice or the anti-Semitism of someone who feels personally threatened. It's, it's, it's an anti-Semitism which is global, which comes from first principles. Hitler's anti-Semitism begins from the idea that the Jews have spoiled the world, that there, there was a perfect or there could be a perfect world order. Bloody, competitive, destructive, um, a, a world in which we starve one another without thinking instinctively, that would be perfect. The Jews are the ones who, have made, who, who, who make this difficult by teaching us about law, or teaching us about constitutions, about working class solidarity, about capitalist contracts, about Christian mercy, it doesn't matter. So the anti-Semitism is very, very deep, and it arises from an, a view of, of the world. So this, this itself did not cause the Holocaust, of course, but I believe it was a necessary condition. Um, we, we, we know that Hitler comes to power, we know that Hitler transforms Germany, we know that Germany makes war, we know that during that war there's a Holocaust. But for the Holocaust to happen, there first had to be an image in Hitler's mind, an image not of Germany so much as an image of the entire world and, and the way the world should be. So the, the Jews were not, as many people think, they were, he, he, did, he didn't regard them as subhumans, but as non-humans rather. In this, in this weird planetary ecologic, uh, ecological thinking that he was. Exactly, he exactly. So there's a, Hitler has two basic attitudes towards peoples he regards as other. There is racism, and the racism can seem unfamiliar, especially to Americans, because it's not a racism of pigmentation. Hitler is, is a very consistent racist. He can think that people who look very similar are racially inferior. So when Hitler looks out upon Eastern Europe, he sees Russians and Poles and Ukrainians, and he regards them as racially inferior. He regards them as subhuman. He regards them as being like colonial peoples. These are Hitler's comparisons. Colonial peoples in Africa or Indians in North America. He regards them as inferiors who are going to be swept away, devastated, destroyed by superior Europeans. That's one line of thought. The other line of thought is about the Jews, and it's different. That line of thought says, why aren't we already destroying the Poles and the Ukrainians and the Russians? Why haven't we already taken the Lebensraum, which is the black earth of Ukraine? Why is the struggle not happening already? And there the answer is the Jews. For Hitler, the Jews are not a race. They're not a master race, they're not an inferior race. For Hitler, a race wants territory. And what's special, what's non-human or even superhuman, parahuman about the Jews is that they don't want territory. They, they're not in this competition the way everyone else is. For Hitler, Jews want the entire world. They want to control the entire ecosystem, the entire planet. And to do that, 
They don't fight over land, they fight with ideas, like communism or like capitalism or like Christianity. They use ideas as, as weapons. So for Hitler, the Jews have almost this kind of, as you say, a sort of supernatural quality because unlike all other humans, they don't care about land. And they have the ability to do something which is superhuman, which is invent ideas and get them into our minds and therefore induce us to behave in ways that are, that are against nature. So the subhumans, uh, Hitler thinks the subhumans can be easily defeated. They're one kind of enemy. The Jews are a different kind of enemy. The Jews have to be destroyed so that the whole competition for land, the whole struggle for land can begin. And the concept of uh, Lebensraum is, al is also, if I understand you right correctly, a bit misinterpreted. You, you, you seem to think that it's about sp space only, but it, it's really about standards of living as well. With, with Hitler, there's always a temptation, a tendency to say, well, this was just a madman. And the Germans went through a period of madness, right? We, we hesitate to think of National Socialism as politics or as an attractive form of politics. And I think one of the things we have to understand is that it was and that ideas like this can be attractive. If we begin from Hitler's ideology, from the first chapter of Mein Kampf, which is what we've really been talking about so far, there we have this view of biology, that really all that matters is biology. We biologically, we belong to different races. We should recognize that and we should, and we should feel solidarity with our own race and we should feel enmity to other races. That's the law, that's the law of nature. And that is one sense of Lebensraum, a biological sense. It, you know, it means habitat, ecological niche. But at the same time, Hitler says, at the same time, Hitler says, it's not only about life in the biological sense. Lebensraum is also about the space we need to have the highest standard of living in the world. Hitler says in his second book, we must be like America. We must control as much territory as the Americans do. We must then apply technology to that territory so that we can become as rich as the Americans. Hitler says the average German family doesn't compare itself anymore to the family next door. It compares itself to the Americans. And Hitler says that's normal, that's good. Jealousy, envy, greed, this is human nature. This is how we should be as a, as a race. We should, we should want not only to survive, but we should want to live as well as everyone else. And what's interesting about this um, is that he, he therefore mixes two different kinds of emotions, right? He's saying, we, we're struggling for survival, for, for, for survival. That's a very powerful set of emotions, fear, fear, anxiety. And then he's also saying, we're struggling for lifestyle. We're struggling to, to, for, for wealth. So he's appealing to envy, to greed, to jealousy, all, all, at, the same, all at the same time. And this is, the, this is a mixture which is not so unfamiliar, right? Um, it's not so unfamiliar. The, the you know, radical accounts of capitalism which say it's the, the best rise to the top and it's legitimate to, to want more and more and more. They're, they're, di they're not so different from this version of, of events. Or to put it perhaps more provocatively, people living in the middle of the United States 
how much do they think about their standard of living as might as perhaps costing lives, right? Somewhere else. People in Sweden maybe think a little bit more about these things, but perhaps not as much as I wish they do or imagine they do. But how easy is it for us to think, we wouldn't say it, but to think, well, perhaps it's all right if a thousand people die in industrial accidents in China, so long as I have the latest computer. We would never say it quite like that. Hitler was simply much more direct. He said, we should confront that this is the way we are, and then we should kill directly. We should recognize this is the way we are, and we should kill tens of millions of Slavs for our standard of living. To keep, uh, to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the, and, and what's, what's interesting about this is that it's insatiable, right? So we, we began by talking about globalization. Hitler was already a theorist of globalization. The things that he says in the, in the late 1920s are very similar to things that people say in a different way, of course, in the 1970s and 1980s to the present. Hitler says it's all one system and it's all subjective. It's, so it's not whether Germans just have enough to eat. I mean, he'll appeal to that emotion of survival, but it's not just that. It's do Germans feel like they're the best fed people on the planet? And that's, sub, that's relative, right? So there's never enough. There, there can never be enough. And it's subjective because you can always feel like the French are doing better, or the Swedes are doing better, or the Americans are doing better. So there's no end. It's a politics of insatiability. Of course, and this has very much to do with today's situation and to the final chapter in your book, to which we will get back at the end of the conversation here. But let's, let's halt in, in uh, Vienna, in Austria, in 1938. One of the very fine things with your work is that you take us with you to personal uh, individual destinies. And the book starts with a very tragic or very, very touching scene. Would you tell us about this and, and what happened and why it came, came to happen? Let, let's, let's start a different way. When, when we think of the Holocaust, when we read books about the Holocaust, very often what happens is we learn a lot about Nazi Germany in the, in the 1930s. We, we, we receive answers to the questions, how Hitler came to power, which is important. We receive answers to the questions, how were Germans transformed in the 1930s? This, this is also very important, but it's not enough. It's not enough. There was no Holocaust in Germany in the 1930s. Hitler was in power in Germany from 1933 until late 1941 before German Jews were killed in any significant numbers. And when German Jews were killed, they weren't killed on the territory of pre-war Germany. They had to be sent somewhere else. And so when we read about the Holocaust, what often happens is we read through to 1941 or 42, and then the Jews are sent off somewhere unknown, Riga, Minsk, Wuj, somewhere which is foreign to them, foreign to the Nazis, and also usually foreign to the author of the book, somewhere far away and vague. What I'm trying to do when I talk about Vienna is explain that there's an international politics to the Holocaust, not just a national politics. The national politics would never have been enough. It would, Hitler could never have brought about a Holocaust unless he imagined a world which was anarchic and unless he, and he also needed to have the capability to make the world more anarchic. 
So when we think about Austria, what do we, what do we see? What's, what's, what's the image before our eyes? If we think about Austria in March of 1938, we're, we, we, we may remember this is Anschluss. This is the moment when Austria ceases to exist, right? And if we think of it, we think of it in national terms. But what does it mean when a state ceases to exist for the citizens? This is a very special kind of politics, which I hope we will never experience again in this continent. When, when a state ceases to exist and no one is a citizen, there's this terrible moment of limbo, this terrible moment of free floating when everyone's political status is uncertain and where almost inevitably a majority will coalesce against a minority to say it's the minority who is responsible for the state that doesn't exist. If you were an Austrian in March of 1938 and you know that Nazi power is coming, it's not surprising that you define yourself against the people the Nazis have defined as the enemy. But what, what's so striking about this is that the violence which is then unleashed against Jews in March of 1938 in Austria is worse than anything which has happened in Germany up to that point, right? Because the politics is more dramatic. If you can make a state disappear, things are possible which are not possible before. So the way the book begins is with a project of commemoration in, in Vienna. Um, Vienna is, is perhaps a European city which is not in the top of the ranks when it comes to commemorating the Holocaust, but there are certain interesting projects. And one of them is, one of them was happening in the sixth district of Vienna where I was living at the time. They were putting little brass plaques, um, little brass markers in front of apartment buildings, houses where Jews used to live, which just had the name of the Jew and the date of deportation. Very, very simple. It's a practice which was copied from, from Germany, in fact. Um, and so going, if, you look, if you look at a street from, from block to block, the construction workers would come and it was interesting because they were usually Yugoslavs, right? They were usually Serbs, or Croats. Some of them were Turks, which is interesting in itself. And they would, it looked, from a distance, it looked like they were doing construction. They were lifting the sidewalk, right? They were, they were, they were, um, they were checking for pipes. But what they were really doing was installing these little plaques to remember Jews who had been deported from Vienna during, during, during the Holocaust. And so the book begins with a conversation where a boy is asking his father, what, what are they doing? What are they doing? And this leads us also to your, I mean, your, your key thesis, let's say that, that, that the real danger and the real, that the real danger for people, not only then in Austria in 1938 or in Poland in 1939 or in Ukraine in 1940, but the real danger for us even today is the dissolution of the state. Mm -hmm and the institutions of the state. So we, we, we often, we, we assume that Nazi Germany was unique. And in this book I say that it was unique, but in a very different way. I, I'm concerned that when we say Nazi Germany was unique or the Holocaust is unique, what we're doing is we're putting it beyond history. We're saying it's somehow too important to be understood. It's somehow in a different category. I think Nazi Germany is unique in a different way. I think it's unique because it exemplifies 
two historical trends which we actually understand but we don't usually put together. So in the history of mass killing, there are states that can kill their own citizens in large numbers. This is one of the subjects of Bloodlands, um, the previous book. And those states are the People's Republic of China, Cambodia, the Soviet Union, party states. Every historian who works on this part of the world will say, we know examples of states which can kill their citizens in large numbers. On the other hand, there's a completely different set of academic scholarly literature by political scientists, sociologists, um, anthropologists, which says, we have now done thousands of studies of this with our own methods ever since Yugoslavia, ever since um, Bosnia, Srebrenica, we have begun to study ethnic cleansing with quantitative comparative methods. And our finding, say the social scientists, is mass killing is associated not with strong states. It's associated with states that collapse. It's associated with failed states. It's associated with anarchy and chaos, precisely. Both of these things are true. What's unique about Nazi Germany is that it brings the two of them together. Because Nazi Germany, of course, was a party state. It was an ideological state. But it's a central element of the ideology was the spread of anarchy, was the destruction of other states. So uniquely, Nazi Germany is a party state that destroys other states. And therefore, Nazi Germany is the most murderous regime that we know. It's unique because it brings together things that we know, right? So Nazi Germany destroys states because of the ideology we talked about before. It destroys states because there's a specific institution, a non-state institution, right? The SS, whose job it is to destroy states which attempts to destroy states by murdering everyone in a place like Poland or in the Western Soviet Union, by murdering everyone who seems to be capable of political action. There's an idea, there's an institution, and when, and when the war comes to the east, to Poland and the Soviet Union, to the Baltic states, the SS manages to create a zone, a space, where things are possible that are not possible in Germany, <laughs> that are not possible in, even in an authoritarian, anti-Semitic environment, certain things turn out not to be possible. But if you can destroy a state, if you can create those political conditions, then mass killing turns out to be possible. So let's, if, to put it bluntly, it was safer to be Jew in Germany than it was in, let's say, Eastern Poland or in Belarus or Ukraine in these years. Much safer. So. We have an account of the Holocaust, which is horrifying enough, but it, it comes from the experiences of, of, of German Jews. It comes from the experiences of survivors, precisely. And the survivors are people, usually people who have a longer, slower experience of Nazi oppression. Hannah Arendt, who I admire tremendously, and these two books are in large measure conversations with Hannah Arendt, Hannah Arendt was right that to kill a Jew, you had to separate a Jew from the state. But what she didn't see is that the long, slow, the long, slow separation is not nearly as effective as the radical 
quick separation of destroying a state. When we think of the Holocaust, we think of it as the end point of a slow process of discrimination. And that was true for some people. It was true for German Jews, for example. But that also meant that German Jews had a relatively long time to escape, as in the end most of them would. In, in Ukraine in 1941, just to think of an example everyone knows, in, in, in Babi Yar, in Kiev, at the end of September 1941, German power had only been present for a few days. A few days, not a few weeks or months or years, a few days, and already the Germans were round, rounding up, trying to round up every single Jew in a major European metropolis and kill them. Um, at Babi Yar, 33,771 Jews are, are shot to death over the course of two days, just a few days after the Germans arrive. That's possible in that political, or if you prefer, anti-political setting where the Germans believe that they're destroying states, where they believe that they're bringing a completely different kind of, of order. And you can see this, this, I mean, one simple way to see this is in the behavior of the Germans themselves. The, the police battalions at, at Babi Yar in Kiev, the German policemen, some of them came from Bremen. They hadn't been trained to do anything like this. They had just been in Bremen doing what they ordinarily do, trying to find criminals, helping people cross the street, right? Stopping traffic so school children could get to school. They're doing that one day, and the next day, they're in Kiev rounding up Jews and helping to murder them. How is that possible? It's possible because the environment they find themselves in is so radically different. And when they go back to Bremen, then they behave, as it were, normally again. So this, the politics of state destruction acts on the Germans, but it also acts on everyone else. If you're a local policeman, your job in the 1930s would have been to preserve law and order. That's what policemen do. But let's say the state for which you used to work is destroyed. What do you do then? You can leave, and some of them did, but if you stay, you find yourself subordinate to a completely different structure. And before you know it, you're doing completely different things. Okay, so I'll, I'll now assume that not everyone is sympathetic to the police and their dilemmas, although I am. Let's, start, let's talk about the Jews. What is the Judenrat? If you, normally, if you write about the Holocaust, the Judenrat appears out of nowhere um, when the ghettos appear. But who were those people? Who were the people who ran the Judenrat in, in, in occupied Poland after the ghettos were formed? They were the Jewish elites of the 1920s and 1930s. They were the same men, and they were always men. They were the same men who ran the Jewish communal authorities, the legal Jewish communal authorities in Poland in the 1930s. The same people. But that structure, the structure of local Jewish autonomy in Poland, is, radical, is, is radically altered when there's no more Polish state, right? Jewish communal autonomy was a way for local Jewish elites to communicate directly with the Polish central state. When that state is destroyed, those same people are there in the same cities, but now they're dealing with a very different kind of authority, an anti-political authority, a racial authority. And so the same people who were organizing Jewish burials in the 1938 or organizing kosher slaughter in 1938 are, are then the ones who are fulfilling orders to choose their fellow Jews for deportation in 1942. Is that because they've suddenly become worse people? It's No, it's because the institutional structure has changed so radically. 
And there's also, I mean, you write very, very tellingly at one point that the whole project is about to reinstall the law of the jungle. Uh, although the jungle, all the trees were, were, were cleared many years ago in these, I mean, these, these were civilized areas with large cities and, and culture and so on. But there's also this interaction between, in, in, with the double destruction of the state, because first there's one destruction by the Soviets, and then comes the Nazis to destroy it again. How, how did this interaction work in, in, in reality? Okay, let me, can I, I'm going to take that as two yeah, questions, because I, I want to comment on the jungle, because it's, it's so interesting, because it, it, it's an example of, of the fictional world that I was trying to describe earlier with Trump, right? So Trump is creating in our minds a world where the Chinese are smart and the Mexicans are invading and the African Americans are just shooting each other and the Jews are plotting against us and all of this. That's a fictional world. It has its own coherence, it has its own logic, but it doesn't derive directly from factual reality. This idea of the jungle, right? I mean, if we look at Poland in 1938 and Germany in 1938, from the distance of today, they're really very similar societies. Um, similar standards of development, similar methods of agriculture, similar bureaucracies, similar constitutions. They're not really very different kinds of places. And yet, in the German imagination, it's a jungle, right? It's, it's something uncultivated, it's fresh. The people there aren't real people. And that, that fictional way of seeing the world can be very powerful, especially in a circumstance where you actually invade a country and declare that its state no longer I exists. So in German, you know, I mean, think of this. The SS, who were the SS? They were lawyers, right, to a large degree. Most of the commanders of the SS battalions had legal doctorates. They were elites. They were young, ambitious elites. Who were they killing when they went into Poland? They were killing people who were really a lot like themselves. They were tasked to kill the political elite of Poland. So they were, also, they were killing the people in Poland who had law degrees, who had read the same books as them in law school not very long before. Right? I mean, there's something very striking about this, that you can see those people as being your inferior, even though they, they're really a lot, like, a lot like you. It's a very simple point, but I just wanted to say it because it has to do with this fictional world and how powerful it can be. With state destruction, I mean, there's, there's an abstract way to talk about state destruction, and that's to say things like, bureaucracy is rather a good thing than a bad thing, because if you belong to a bureaucracy, a bureaucracy is sticky and it won't let you go or um, foreign policy is rather a good thing than a bad thing because if your state is sovereign, it's not going to want to let you go because the diplomats will all say, we can't send our citizens away because that reduces our sovereignty, right? You can say citizenship is a very good thing. The Holocaust happened to people who almost always were first deprived of citizenship, right? And citizenship is an attribute, a central attribute of the state. That's the abstract way of talking about it. And we can quantify this, we can quantify this. Um, almost all the people who die in the Holocaust were first deprived of citizenship. The, the Holocaust happens, and I think can only happen, in a zone of Europe which the Germans deliberately made stateless. But we can also talk about it concretely. We can say there was a march forward where in Vienna, as we've already talked about, in Austria, things were possible that weren't possible in Germany. 
when Czechoslovakia is destroyed in the spring of 1939, things are then possible in Czechoslovakia, which weren't possible in Austria or Germany. When we move to Poland in the fall of 1939, more things are possible. And by the time we get to the Soviet Union, we reach a very special situation, one which heretofore, I think it's fair to say, no one has really tried to describe, but which I think is crucially important. The Soviet Union destroys states too. If anything, it's better at destroying states than, than Nazi Germany is. The Soviet Union began its existence by destroying states, a Ukrainian state, a Georgian state, right? A number of independent states that formed from the Russian, from the Russian Empire. The, the Soviet Union, when it invades Eastern Poland, um, it destroys Polish state structures actually more efficiently than the Germans do. The Germans, the SS, they think they're coming in and killing the Polish elite, but they have a hard time actually finding the Polish elite. The Soviets come in and they have beautiful documentation. They have wonderful, if that's the word, interrogation methods. They very quickly find the actual Polish elite and either kill it or put it in Kazakhstan, right? In, special, in Soviet special settlements, thousands and thousands of kilometers uh, away from home, 8,000 kilometers away from home. They're actually very good at doing this common task of destroying the state. When the Soviets invade Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia in 1940, they do the same thing. Essentially, the whole political elite is either killed or displaced, and the state ceases to exist. Now, that's dramatic enough if you look at it from the point of national history, right? The Estonians, the Latvians, the Lithuanians, they will all say, you West Europeans, you don't understand Soviet power, and they're right. <laughs> they're right, we don't. Um, they will all say, you don't understand our national trauma, and, and they're right. But there's another level to this story. What does it mean, not just for Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, but what does it mean for citizens? What does it mean for Jewish citizens to have the state destroyed once, and then destroyed a second time? So once is bad enough, but a second time. The second time unleashes an even more radical form of politics, because when the Germans arrive, in the Baltic states, where are they arriving? They're arriving in places which have just been conquered by the Soviet Union, which have just experienced levels of violence far higher than the Germans themselves have been able to carry out, right? They're running into populations which are nationally shamed and humiliated. And if you think that these are empty words, imagine how Swedes would feel um, if the state of Sweden ceased to exist, right? If a foreign power could make Sweden cease to exist. If I said, while we're here in this auditorium, right, the United States has actually invaded and your country no longer exists, right? I don't know what a plausible example is. Well, actually, I do know who would make your state cease to exist, actually. Um, there is a good candidate for that, unfortunately, in the world today. But imagine if that actually happened. It's, it's unthinkable, right? But, but try to imagine it, and try to imagine how Swedes who react when, a, when there are a few foreigners, right? How do you react when your whole country, when your whole state, goes away, and it's run by foreigners, right? How, do, how does that feel? How does that feel? What does that do to people? If just a little bit of immigration can generate mass populism, how does it feel when your whole state is destroyed, right? That's what the Lithuanians, the Latvians, and Estonians were going through, and that's what the Germans exploited. Because when the Germans invade, they say, this experience you've had, and they say this in the local languages using local collaborators, using modern means like radio, this experience you've had, it wasn't your fault, it was the fault of the Jews. So think of how powerful that would be, right? 
so it's, there are plenty of anti-Semites in those countries, just as there are in all over Europe. But Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, where the Holocaust begins, those are not the most anti-Semitic countries in Europe by a long measure, right? Lithuania took more Jews in the 1930s than the United States of America, and Lithuania is a small country, right? Um, and this is, but this is where the Holocaust began, and I think it's because of this politics. When Germany invades the Western Soviet Union, it's invading territories where the Soviet Union has already destroyed the state. That means it can bring in local people who want revenge. It means that it can manipulate these emotions, as I've described. It means that it can recruit double collaborators. So many, and perhaps most, although it's hard to prove, but many of the people, local people in the Baltic states, who killed Jews for the Germans had just been in a Soviet uniform of one kind or another, right? Once you realize that, then the whole picture becomes more complicated. You can't say, well, they were just nationalists or they were just anti-Semites. If they were, what were they doing in Soviet uniforms, right? Right up to the day, the week, the month before, they switched sides. There's a politics to this, and the politics is, if you've collaborated with the Soviet Union and the Germans come, you desperately want to show that you didn't collaborate with the Soviet Union. And the Germans tell you how. Kill a Jew. Mm. And, and your you record for, is clear. Forget who you were. Yeah. yeah. So the idea that it was the inherit, inherent anti-Semitism of the, well, the people of the East that made the Holocaust possible, that's, that's, that's the wrong way of thinking, according to you. And it's, 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 yeah. it's, it's, it's to go in the same trap as Nazi thinking would want us to. I, I think that's basically right. So there is one way, I think, in which the history is, the historiography is a little bit Nazified. Um, and that is our view that Germany is an interesting, sophisticated, complicated society. And so we, we, it's right to spend hundreds of pages understanding how Germans could do such a thing. But as soon as we get to Lithuania or Serbia or Poland, then, well, it's just the local anti-Semites. Mm. That's a problem with our point of view because Lithuanians and Serbs and Poles were not necessarily less sophisticated people than Germans, nor were their societies less interesting. They're just more distant, perhaps, from us for linguistic reasons or for reasons having to do with the Cold War. It doesn't make sense to spend 500 pages trying to explain how Germans could do such a thing and then to spend one sentence saying the Ukrainians were anti-Semites. That doesn't really work. And it reproduces this, this civilization barbarism scale, which is part of Nazi thought. And, and so, uh, you know, go back to your favorite book about the Holocaust and see, does it do this? Does it spend 500 pages on the Germans and then one sentence each on other nations just to tell you that they were, um, that they were virulently anti-Semitic or that they were always anti-Semitic, right? This is a problem. Of course there was anti-Semitism in Eastern Europe. Of course there was anti-Semitism all, all over Europe. Our problem is that it doesn't correspond to how the Holocaust happens. Right? Take Germany. In 1920, very few people would have said that Germany was the most anti-Semitic country in Europe, and yet it's in Germany where it all started. Or take France and the Netherlands. Pretty much everyone would have said in the 1930s that anti-Semitism is a major issue in French politics, but almost no one would have said it's a major issue in the Netherlands, and yet 75% of the Dutch Jews are going to die, and 75% of the French Jews are going to survive. Um, look at Poland and the Soviet Union, a different kind of comparison. 
In Poland in the 1930s, anti-Semitism is a major issue of politics. Um, the, the, main, the main opposition party, the National Democrats, is openly anti-Semitic. Uh, and the ruling, the ruling, the clique which is ruling Poland has to adjust to that and invents a kind of policy of open anti, of, of I would call official anti-Semitism, where the idea is that we want 90% of the Jews to emigrate. The Soviet Union is completely different. In the Soviet Union, anti-Semitism is a crime. In the Soviet Union, there's, there are very high rates of intermarriage between Jews and non-Jews, right? Many things look very different on the Polish side and on the Soviet sides of the border before the war. But then during the war, the death rates of Jews are exactly the same on both sides of the border, right? Exactly the same. So, you know, you can say, well, deep down those Soviets were just as anti-Semitic as the Poles. I don't think that really works. I, I think if you look at the world in the 1930s, no one would have said that. What Poland and the Soviet Union have in common is that they were both, they were both political systems which the Germans decided they were going to destroy. Mm -hmm. And that turns out to be the most important explanation. All over Europe, right, you can look at any scale you want. Look at Bulgaria. The Bulgarians have a nice story about how they rescued their Jews. Well, it's partly true the Jews who were on the territory of pre-war Bulgaria almost all survived, although they were deported from Sofia, which is not very nice. Um, they almost all survived. But the territory which changes hands um, in Macedonia and in Thrace, the territory that Bulgaria gets from Greece and from Yugoslavia, that creates that situation where for a moment it's unclear who's a citizen and who's not. And all of those Jews are sent by Bulgarian authorities to die. And Eichmann, who's in charge at the other end, he writes to the Bulgarian authorities and says, you're sending me people who don't have citizenship, right? And the Bulgarians confirm, telegram comes back, yes, these are people taken from Greece and Yugoslavia. They no longer have Greek and Yugoslav citizenship. They don't yet have Bulgarian citizenship. And so they die. And that's the general rule all around, yeah. all around Europe. So they don't have the protection of the state or the institutions of the state. This, this proportion that you are describing here goes for one more uh, very powerful symbol of the Holocaust, Auschwitz, um, which in, in your work you describe it more like as a symbol or metonymy of the Holocaust, while in fact when, when Auschwitz became Auschwitz for real in 1943 or 1944, many, many million Jews were already killed shot in the pits of Ukraine or, or Belarus or gassed in places like Treblinka where no one goes today, with, where around one million Jews were gassed to death mm -hmm. or in Sobibor, in Bauchek, in... Mm -hmm. we, 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 we identify Auschwitz with the Holocaust and in a way that's understandable. Auschwitz was... A, was among the most horrifying places in Europe, more than a million people were, were murdered there. The problem is that Auschwitz comes at the end of the story, not at the beginning. Auschwitz becomes the major German killing facility at the end of the war. They don't learn that they can commit a Holocaust in Auschwitz. They've already learned that they can do it. And where did they learn? They learned in 1941 in, in doubly occupied Lithuania. They learned in 1941 in, in Soviet Ukraine, in Soviet Belarus. That's where they learned that a Holocaust was possible. 
Um, and so if we want to explain the Holocaust, we actually can't start with Auschwitz. You, you, if we try to jump from um, 1938 or 1939 to Auschwitz, we're missing the Holocaust. We're missing the important thing. We're missing the moment where the Germans realized that they and local people around them can actually kill Jews in large numbers. We're missing the realization that they have in 1941 that they can carry out a final solution by killing. They didn't know that. They didn't know that. They thought they were going to be deporting the Jews to Siberia or Madagascar. They learn in 1941 that they can kill them in large numbers, that they can do this. They know, the, the SS learns that the Ordnungspolizei and the Wehrmacht will go along. The SS learns that enough, not very many by proportion, but enough local people can be brought along to help that industrial killing can happen. They didn't know it was possible. They learn in a few weeks in the summer of 1941. And then um, when, they, when they move the Holocaust, when the Holocaust shifts from the Soviet Union to Poland, Jews in Poland are already in, in ghettos. They're in ghettos to be deported to Madagascar. They were in ghettos to be deported, but there was no place to deport them to. Once the Germans know that they can kill, then they create Belzec, Sobibor, Treblinka, and they deport the Jews who are in the ghettos to these death facilities. They're not camps. The camp is a place where you spend a night. They're death facilities. They deport them to Belzec, Sobibor, Treblinka, which kill more people than Auschwitz. I mean, together they kill far more people than Auschwitz. But we don't remember them because there are basically no survivors. The total number of survivors of Treblinka, Sobibor, and Belzec is less than 100. Less than 100. Right? Um, and then it's after that the third stage of the Holocaust is to kill all the Jews of Europe, and that's Auschwitz. Um, but, but, but Auschwitz is a quite ambiguous lesson, or, or it's a lesson which really confirms the argument I'm trying to make. And most of the people who were supposed to be sent to Auschwitz were, uh, were not actually sent there because in order to kill Jews of Western or Southern Europe, you usually had to extract them from sovereign states. And even if those states were German allies, even if those states were anti-Semitic, it wasn't that easy to get them to yield their Jews, right? So Romania, to take an extreme example, Romania has its own policy of killing Jews. It kills about 300 Jews, 300,000 Jews. Um, but it won't send its Jews to Auschwitz, even though the Germans want them to do so. The French start and then they, and then they stop, right? So Auschwitz is actually very ambiguous. Um, it kills a million people, and that's horrifying. But what we need to grasp is that it killed fewer people than it was meant to kill by, by a lot. And that's because Auschwitz was largely a place where Jews from sovereign states were supposed to go. And some, insofar as there was some sovereignty, even if it was flawed, that would tend to protect Jews. You have a comparison between two countries here in your book, between Estonia and Denmark, just to make a further example of, of, of the mechanisms that you are describing. Would you care to explain just very briefly the difference between Estonia and Denmark? Oh, in this book, I'm, I'm very consciously trying to write a history that's not a national history. And in that way, it's different from essentially every other book about the Holocaust. There are usually two variants of books about the Holocaust. There are books that begin in Germany and are really German national histories, even though they might include the rest of Europe at the end. And then there are local studies. 
studies of villages, counties, maybe even studies of a whole country. What I'm trying to do is to look at the phenomenon as a whole. And my starting assumption, this is going to seem very simple, childishly simple, but my starting assumption is not that people of different ethnicities behave in different ways. Mm. My starting assumption is that human beings reacted the way they do in understandable ways, having to do with the circumstances, the structures, or the lack of structures around them. Now, the reason I say all of this is because the Holocaust, like almost everything else, is, is remembered in Europe nationally. So the Danes have a story about what they did. Um, the story about the Danes is that they heroically rescued their Jews. Which is not, and it's not that that's false, it's just that if you look at it comparatively, it's not so surprising because Denmark was at one extreme of German occupation policy. It was at the gentle extreme. The occupation of Denmark was a very conventional military occupation. The, the Danish government stays in power. Um, the head of state remains. The government remains. The parliament remains. The, the Danes even have democratic elections under German occupation. In that situation, the Jews of Denmark remain Danish citizens and therefore are going to survive. Now there's a way how they survive and it's an interesting story, of course. It's interesting that the Germans decide in 1943 to kill the Jews of Dan Denmark, but that German local authorities, when they look at Denmark, say this is not possible. Did they say it's not possible because the Danes are such lovely people? They say it's not possible because the structures are different. One of the men who was supposed to carry out the final solution in Denmark was a German policeman who had just been in charge of the Auschwitz district of Poland. He came to Denmark and what did he say? Did he say the Danes are lovely and the Poles are horrible? No, he said in this institutional arrangement, this is going to be very difficult. And so a kind of compromise was found in which the German authorities let it be known to the Danish political class that this was coming, and then Danes, and this is virtuous and exemplary, and then Danes helped Danish Jews to go to Sweden, which is another interesting part of the story. Why did the Swedes say that the Danish Jews were welcome? Is it because the Swedes were such lovely people? No, um, it was because this is 1943, and by 1943, neutral Sweden, mm was looking for ways to convey to the probably victorious West that it was tilting in its direction. Hence, Sweden will take Danish Jews, which are after all a very small number of people. Hence, Sweden will agree with the Americans that it should send an amateur diplomat called Raoul Wallenberg to, to, to Budapest, right? So when you look at Denmark and you look at it comparatively, you say, okay, most of the Danish Jews survived. The citizens all survive, really, almost all, but the, the Jews who are not citizens, what did Denmark do with them? It sent them back to die, just like everyone else. Denmark stops taking German Jews, 1934 or 35, I think. It sends them back. Lithuania is still taking them at that point. Latvia, even Estonia takes a couple, um, but, but, but Denmark is not. So Estonia, another small country, small Jewish population on the Baltic Sea, no meaningful tradition of anti-Semitism in Estonia. In Estonia, 99% of the Jews die. Is that because 
the Estonians as a people were so different than the Danes as a people? I don't think so. I think it's because the Soviet Union invaded Estonia, destroyed the political class, wiped out the institutions, and then Germany invaded the Soviet Union and thereby doubly invaded Estonia. The two countries were not so, in 1938, if you looked at these two countries, you would never say all the Jews are going to survive here and all the Jews are going to die here. No one would have predicted that. What they represent are the extremes of the experience of, of the war. Uh, so this is, for real, the Holocaust as history and as warning, as the subtitle to, to, to this book is. In the final chapter, uh, you describe a situation where local shortage of food and water, and now speaking about today, mm. or, or the near future on this planet, when local shortage of food and water could elapse in some kind of ecological panic, search for scapegoats, conditions similar to the ones that you describe in the 1930s or 40s. You, you, you write about climate change, about a situation where standards of living are confused with the right to live, just as in the 30s, where struggle for food and water could make authoritarian regimes act in similar ways. So what you're saying is that what we should learn from this is that this can all happen again, given the the right, or the wrong, rather, conditions. You believe in this? Yes, of course. So history, people say politics is the art of the possible. History is the art of knowing what is possible. <laughs> this happened, therefore it was possible. This happened, therefore it's history. If this happened, something like it could happen. And this thing which happened, I think we have to try to understand, not just remember, of course we should remember, but understand, because it's the understanding which gives us some chance of preventing similar events. The dominant way we remember is in terms of rescue. We remember the rescuers. We, we want to imitate the rescuers. And of course, that's, that's a very good thing to aspire to. The problem with this is that by the time the word rescue is relevant, the Holocaust has already happened. The context of each rescue is the murder of millions. So what we need to be able to do is avoid a situation in which the word rescue is the operative term. We don't want to get to the last moment, we want to prevent that last moment from ever arriving. And so what I do in the book is I try to get us to understand the Holocaust historically, which means accessibly, which means such that we can see not just Germany, but we can see Austria, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Latvia, the Soviet Union, France, as normal in the sense of, of not being so different from us, where, where people faced situations, choices, terrible choices, and reacted not so differently than we probably would in those situations, right? The question then becomes, how do we, knowing, this is important, knowing that we're not that much better, if better at all, than the people of the 1930s, what can we learn? 
Because for me, the false lesson is we're great. Mm. That's not the right lesson. The right lesson is not we commemorate the Holocaust and they didn't, right? That's not the right lesson. That's meaningless. What's meaningful is, would be, we have learned something from their experience. And what have we learned? We have learned something about structures, something about conditions, something about ideas. And here I agree with everyone who says that we have to be aware of certain kinds of anti-global ideas is how I think of them, certain ways of thinking which translate the real tensions of real life into threats by small groups. Everyone agrees with that, or I assume everyone agrees with that. I mean, unless you're actually a Nazi, in which case you don't agree with it. Um, the, yeah, nervous laughter from the crowd. Um, <laughs> the, 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 but we have learned other things. I mean, we, or we could learn other things. If I'm right about how the Holocaust happened, we could learn that it's not just about bad authoritarian states, it's about destroying states. And if that had been a lesson, perhaps Americans would have thought differently about invading Iraq in 2003. Mm. If that had been a lesson, perhaps Europeans would have reacted differently when Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014. In both cases, the people doing the invading said, we're stopping the Nazis, right? The Americans say, Saddam Hussein is like Hitler. So we're doing the right thing. But maybe if you're dismantling the Iraqi regime, awful as it was, maybe you're doing the wrong thing. When the Russians invade Ukraine, they say, and they lie, they know it's not true, but they say, we're stopping the fascists from taking over in Kiev. And then Europeans spend six months figuring out that that makes no sense. But they say it, right? And almost nobody, no, almost nobody says, but you're trying to destroy a state. That's a very bad thing. We learned in the 1930s and 40s, that's a very bad thing. We haven't learned this lesson about state destruction. We haven't learned it at all, but we could. It's possible we could learn it. And the other lesson, as you mentioned, is about the environment. Germans in the 1930s had real reasons to be concerned about food. They had experienced a blockade. They'd experienced malnutrition. Um, and they lived in a world economy where food was still political. What's special about the last three generations in the West is that we are the only people ever in the history of the world, as far as I know, to have lived lives where food was not political. <laughs> this is the first time this has ever happened. And, it could, and it's likely temporary, right? Or it's quite possibly temporary. I mean, I'm not saying that Swedes or Americans are going to starve in the next five years. But I am saying that, thanks to global warming, the supply of food is unpredictable in ways that we might not have expected. So if there's a drought in, if there, let's just, let me give you a crazy example. There's a drought, a global warming-induced drought, and therefore the Chinese buy up uh, agricultural commodities on world markets, and therefore there are food riots in Egypt, and therefore there are revolutions across the Middle East. Right? What am I describing? I'm describing something which just happened. That was the Arab Spring. That's how it happened, right? That's one, of the re that's one of the ways that it happened. Or let's imagine that thanks to an unprecedented drought in the northwest of Syria, mm -hmm. you have two million internal migrants to Syrian cities, and that this leads to um, unrest in Syria. 
Or let's imagine that after the Americans invade Iraq, um, a million and a half Iraqis flee to Syria. So you have a million and a half refugees in addition to those internally displaced people and that they're all in the cities or most of them are in the cities, right? Let's imagine that that then is one of the contribu contributing factors to a war in Syria, which itself leads to genocide, right? These, these things have all happened. What I'm describing are events that we have just witnessed, right? All of us who have lived through the past 15 years have experienced these things. And, the, and as I see it, the key to understanding them is the Holocaust, not because they're like the Holocaust, but because the Holocaust, because it was the extreme version of all of this, gives us all three parts that we should look out for. The, 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 the planetary ideology, the state destruction, the, the ecological panic. The, the events after the Holocaust have had one or two of those components, mm. right? I mean, in, in, in Rwanda, there's a threat to the state and there's a failure of the harvest the, the, the year before. Um, in Darfur, uh, there is, there is, um, there's the failed harvest in the north, and the state si sides with people in the north against the south. In Yugoslavia, there's the collapse of a state. In all of these cases, there are things that are familiar if we look at the Holocaust. It's not that they're the same, but it's that the Holocaust gives us three, these three factors. The thing, of course, that we have to be most concerned about is if all three of them present themselves together again, right? If a powerful state motivated by some kind of ideology in conditions of environmental panic, starts to destroy neighboring states. We haven't had that yet, but that's, that's the formula to be most concerned about. A clear view of the Holocaust is our chance, perhaps our last one, to preserve humanity. I think that's the final sentence of your book. It sounded, it sounded more catastrophist when I wrote it than it does now, I think. I, I, I think, I mean, one of the things which is interesting about the reception of the book is that um, I, I, it seems like I'm doing something strange, right, in talking about the present and the future as a historian. And, and I know it's, it's unusual to end on that kind of note of, of, of prophecy as I do. But let's think about this. We all draw lessons from the past many people draw lessons from, from the Holocaust. Um, it's, it's normal, for example, in Germany to think we should believe in human rights because of the Holocaust. That's also a view about the present and the future that comes from the past. All I'm doing is saying there's much more to learn. If the event really is so central to the 20th century, if we really want to claim that it's at the root of how we want to remember Maybe there's much more that we could learn besides human rights and democracy. I'm in favor of human rights and democracy. I do not think that those things exhaust the lessons of, of the Holocaust. And so I, I very much don't believe in happy endings. I mean, the way that the history of the Holocaust usually ends, especially in films, is we find a rescuer and then we imagine the rescuer redeems us. I try to do the opposite in the book. I look really hard for the rescuers. I, I, I read a lot in you know, languages that are not mine, in, in Russian, Polish, and Yiddish, to try to find the rescuers, to try to find patterns of, of find, try to find reasons why people would rescue when it was absolutely unreasonable to do so, when all of the incentives were against it. When, because when you're in one of these stateless zones, not only is it a crime to kill Jews, you have no rights, you're not a citizen, right? Um, 
the economic logic, I mean, people in America, not only in America, but I'll, I'll, I'll criticize America, people in America think that economics can generate virtue, yet maybe in some institutional setups, but if there are no laws, right, if, the, if you're not a citizen, what's the economic rationality of rescuing a Jew? There is none. If a Jew comes to you and asks for help, the economically rational thing to do is to turn him in immediately. First, take all of his money, promise to rescue him, and then turn him into the Germans, which is what most people did, I'm sorry to say. And the reason that's economically rational is that if you don't do that, your neighbor is going to denounce you, and then he's going to get the Jew's money, and he's going to get your house, and you and the Jew, the Jew's going to be killed, and you might be killed as well, right? That's the rationale. That's how the world looks in that situation of, of statelessness. So what I'm trying to say in, in the book is that there are, there are bigger lessons to, to be learned. Um, we should be trying to, to keep ourselves from that moment because the rescuers didn't redeem us, right? The rescuers showed us that this was possible. There are lessons to learn from them. We should try to emulate them. But if, God forbid, Sweden were destroyed or you know, if, if we were somehow in a situation like this, we would behave very much like the passive or the hostile Majority, I'm sad to say, perhaps not you people here. I'm sure you're lovely and above average in all respects. But most of us would behave the way that most people did. And so what I'm doing is that I'm trying to say the Holocaust gives us a deeper look into humanity than we've recognized. And that therefore it gives us more lessons. So when I say it's our, it's our last chance, I, okay, I admit, I'm looking out at the world, and I see the world this way, right? When I, when I look at, you asked about Trump, or you, I, this is how I see the world. I mean, this is how I understand the world. These are the, this is the, these are the lenses which I have, and I can't take them off. I can't take them off, right? I can never take them off. Um, but if I'm right in seeing the world that way, then we have real reasons for concern when, um, when a, a American politicians start talking about not recognizing democratic elections, when Russian politicians start talking about destroying states and try to destroy the European Union, when European leaders start moving away from the European Union, imagining that this will somehow increase their sovereignty, when global warming inevitably brings migrants from south to north, inevitably, 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 when global warming inevitably stretches and then destroys states, leading to negative cycles of killing refugees and, and right-wing politics. These things are all happening and they're things that we can see more clearly with this. Mm. So last hope, goodness, I hope that I'm wrong and I hope that's too dramatic. Um, but the, what I'm trying to say there is, of course there's no redemption here. Um, and and, 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 and this, the, the history never ends, right? There's no satisfactory ending. A movie about the Holocaust ends when the person you want to survive survives, usually and the rescuer you want to see rescue, rescues. This doesn't end. History doesn't actually end. There's no moment where it's over. It just continues, it just goes on. Um, and so what, what we need to be able to do is to, is to learn from this. Be precisely because it doesn't end, we have to engage with it and extract from it what we can. Because if I'm right, and I, I would be happy to be wrong, but if I'm right, the early 21st century is not nearly so different from the early 20th as we generally want to believe. It is certainly a deep look into humanity, and I'm thankful that you see the world 
the way you do and that you have shared this with us tonight. Thank you, Timothy Snyder. My pleasure.